All right, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space, episode 1201 for the week of Monday, June 8th, 2020. And yes, this is our second official episode that we've recorded in 2020, but our first new regular episode, so that's why this is now 12.01. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Good evening, Sawyer, and I can't wait to dive into all of this. Uh, We've got some great news coming up about the United States space program. We're back in the game as far as human space flight, and it's indeed a proud moment for for everybody. Oh, absolutely. And again, uh, as we mentioned, this is episode 1201. I'm going to go back a second to episode 101, season one, episode one. When we started the show back in 2009, we had talked about the end of the space shuttle program was coming. We had covered all of the last shuttle missions, including the last three of them from the Kennedy Space Center, the entire team broadcasting live for the final space shuttle launch on July 8th, 2011, which was the last time that crew had launched from U.S. soil until now. Thankfully, we now have... American astronauts launching from U.S. soil after a successful launch on Saturday, May 30th, 2020 at 3.22 p.m. and 45 seconds. But before we get to the successful launch itself, we got to go back a few days. And this was, I think, the real excitement for all of us here. We had not had a crew walk out to the launch pad. We had not had a crew go up the elevator at Launch Complex 39A, in through the white room and into a rocket, since that July 8th, 2011 date. So let's start on May 27th, 2020, which was a Wednesday, and that was their first launch attempt. And I don't know about Eugene, but my nerves were through the roof. I was bouncing all over the place, and I had not felt like that again in nine years. Yeah, ditto here, Sawyer. The, my nails were down to the nub, pretty much. <laughs> just watching the coverage and just watching how well, again, both the SpaceX uh, public affairs and NASA public affairs really put on a good, good coverage show for, uh, for, for the mission and hats off to both sides. They really, really, really surpassed uh, all expectations there. Oh yeah. I mean, the, their production value was fantastic. And, Just like for Demo 1, this was a joint webcast between SpaceX and NASA. So part of it was being held at the Kennedy Space Center in the normal press auditorium. uh, And the other half was on the floor uh, in Hawthorne, California at SpaceX headquarters. And it's something unreal to see them again in the uh, in the seats with their very sleek looking spacesuits, quite different from the pumpkin suits of shuttle day. Uh, and the fact that you don't have 20,000 cables and wires going everywhere, all of their communications, cooling, everything is through one attachment in the leg. And then the rest literally gets attached through the seat, which is really cool. Just see the two of them in the, you know, the old uh, operations checkout facility with the new look and the new feel. Yeah. And again, sorry, the, the seats that were in that operations and checkout facility, they were identical to the ones that were on Dragon, so they were able to go ahead and check everything out. And those suits are really, really 
built into the spacecraft. They really, really become part of, of the machine, if you will. All of the communications uh, are routed through through that suit. All Even the uh, the pressure systems are routed through that suit. It's really, really an elegant design. A lot of people were kind of taken aback at the at, at the way the suit looks, and they were said, "Well, it looks kind of odd." But I was like, "Yeah, well, you know, just take it for what it is." I mean, my thought was, "Does it do what it's designed to do?" And if the answer is yes, then Great. I don't care. It could be purple with yellow polka dots as long as the darn thing does exactly what it's, what, what it's designed to do, which is to make sure that our crew going up is safe and everybody on board will need needs that and, and to to go ahead and do what they, they need to do on board, that they're able to go ahead and work the, the new flat panel controls that uh that are on board crew dragon that's another aspect of this thing that we should really really should explore a little bit because it 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 takes a little bit of a adjustment to go ahead and get used to just pressing buttons on a on a on a flat panel than you know taking control of a of a stick the, the way that uh previous spacecraft have done before and even if you look at the other vehicles that are in production i mean when i was in houston uh, we got to take a look at the two major simulators for commercial crew, the one, the software for the SpaceX Crew Dragon. So we got to see what the actual docking looked like. And then also we got to go inside the full simulator they had for Boeing Starliner, which had a lot more switches. I believe the uh, Crew Dragon had what, between 30 and 40 physical switches? That was it? Yeah, that's pretty much it, Sawyer. The rest of it's all dependent on those uh, those flat panel controls on there. In fact, uh, if somebody wants to go ahead and try their hand at uh, docking with the International Space Station, they can go to the SpaceX website, spacex.com, and give it a shot and you know, and try to 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 dock the the Crew Dragon with the ISS. It's not easy. I will tell you that right now. It took me three times to go ahead and get it right. Um, <laughs> the first time I'm not even going to talk about. The second time I overshot, and the third I I actually got it right for it. And and I think actually I just kind of stumbled on it. So I'm not I'm not really adept at it but some other folks are really really good at, at finessing that so if you want to go ahead and try your hand at flying the crew dragon and docking with the international space station give it a shot yeah not to brag but i did it on the second try i hate you <laughs> <laughs> the first time i was going slightly too fast and the second time was dead on accurate but uh anyway getting back to earth before we get into space simulated or not here uh so it was really cool seeing that and then Again, you had uh, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine and SpaceX President CEO Elon Musk there uh, greeting them with masks uh, far apart before they were yeah. on their way. The other interesting thing is the closeout crew. Uh, if you've seen Shuttle, those are the people that have the numbers on their back and wear white. This one, uh, people kept mocking a little bit of what it kind of looked like, but uh, they had the all-black, slick-looking suits and face coverings. Actually, Kathy Loiters, who uh, is the uh, head of the commercial crew program, actually nicknamed them the Ninjas, and uh, said so at one of the, one of the press conferences, and I guess the, the, the name stuck. Uh, they did kind of resemble, you know, well, ninjas by any lack of a, a better phrase. But uh, they were there uh, to make sure that uh, that like 
the Crew Dragon was ready to accept Bob Bankin and Doug Hurley and uh, uh, made sure that everything uh, was, was ship-shaped before they got on board and they were the, the folks that closed out uh, the spacecraft and, and made sure that everything was, was working. Essentially, those guys were the new uh, Gunther Wendt team, if you will, uh, from, from the Apollo days. And they, you know, did their, their job and they did it exceptionally well from what, uh, what I saw on the screen. Absolutely. Uh, so continuing on after that, we got the traditional walkout, slightly less traditional because there were fewer people there because of the pandemic. Uh, but they walked out of the Neil A. Armstrong operations and check out facility building to the awaiting throngs of about 20 people <laughs> uh, outside. Uh, but most importantly, as they walked to their specially modified Tesla Model X cars with both the NASA meatball and worm logo on them. Uh, you had the family, the wife, the wives and the uh, family members of the two crew of Doug Hurley and Bob Bankin. And in case you didn't know, both of their wives are also astronauts. Uh, but that was such a touching moment both days. Yes, yeah, Sawyer, so both uh, Karen Nyberg and Megan MacArthur with their, were there with uh, with their with their children to bid uh both uh, uh, Hurley and Bankin uh, goodbye, and uh, I'll tell you that there was a a moment you could hear. I think it was Bob Bankin, uh, and I think this was at at the during the second launch attempt, where there was a moment you could actually hear Bank Bankin's words saying, "You know, okay, you're going to be good for mommy, right? And 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 make her life a little easier." And just like any old other dad would, and, you know, it was the virtual hug, you know, and they were like, big hug, that whole thing. And then they got into the car and, you know, the, the, the hands out the window. I don't know about you, but I was, I was welling up at that. I mean, that was just, it was such a, uh, just such a personal moment. And it really, really put a human face on this whole thing and a reminder to everybody that, yeah, in in the middle of all this technology, we're still talking about two human beings here and their safety and their well-being. And we haven't been in that position now for, what, nine years? And it was just one of those, those such a human moment that I I almost felt like I was an interloper watching it. You know, I I, I felt that was a really, really private moment for, for the families alone. But I'm glad that they allowed us to go ahead and get that glimpse and get that 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 piece of of uh, of the story in there because it was such a a visceral human moment for for everybody um, watching all over the world. I think. Oh, absolutely! And then on one of the two attempts, uh, when I believe one of their children was said to them, "Let's light this candle as well." Yes. <laughs> yes. That was Bob Bankin's boy, I think, that said that. Um, but indeed, it was such. It was just. Oh, I mean, you want to you want to talk about you know having you want to talk about grabbing the tissue. Uh, that was one of the moments where where you had to do that uh, during the uh, during the launch coverage. Oh yeah, uh, and so then they drove the uh, 15, 20 minute ride from the operations checkout building past the vehicle assembly building, past the press site, on their way to Launch Complex 39A. 
And I should point out on the second attempt, uh, Garrett Reisman, who's yes. a former astronaut who also works for SpaceX, had a little sign now basically saying, take me with. Yeah, I, I was going to mention that, Sawyer. Thank you. you know, Garrett's here. He's local. Um, well, he was a, a, a local guy from uh, from not too far away from where I live in Parsippany. In fact, I lived in Parsippany for a little while. The last time I saw him, we were we were joking. He asked about the traffic on Route 10. I said, yeah, it's still as messed up as ever. And uh, uh, But yeah, that, I thought that was a really cool cool moment. I think Garrett is now a consultant with SpaceX. He's, uh, he's now teaching, I believe, but, uh, um, it's, it, that, that was just too funny. I saw the picture of that on, on Twitter and I just thought that was just, just, ah, that was just, that's Garrett. I love him. I love that man. <laughs> he is fantastic. We've gotten to, I think the last time that we saw him was at one thirty-five when they had the, uh, their, uh, cargo dragon capsule out on display for the Indeed. first time. Yes. Yes. Oh, the good old days. And that was the first time we saw it. Here we are 20 plus resupply missions later and now crew. Um, but anyway, so they went out, uh, in case you didn't catch it, by the way, I, I was corrected on Twitter. They're not license plates, but they had a number plate as it's called on the back that said I S S B N D for I S S bound. Immediately when I saw that, I thought of about, uh, the the uh, the sign at Wallops, you know, International Space Station. You know, they had the on ramp, which is you know the the cargo ramp for for Cygnus, and I immediately thought about that. I thought that was really a cool touch on SpaceX's part. It was just cool all around, and then yeah. to see the tiny little cars pull up underneath the uh, the large Falcon Nine rocket, of which uh, being up close to those, you, I remember seeing the first. Falcon 9 after the shuttle program going, man, that thing looks tiny compared to the shuttle. Having now seen a lot of these and seen them upgrade them and see one of these out there with a Crew Dragon capsule on top, that thing is tall. Yeah. <laughs> it may just be forgetting what it's like nine years later, but still, that is a tall rocket. And if that video didn't show it, nothing will of the tiny little car driving by. And then as they get out the crew, Bending backwards to look up to try and see their rocket reminiscent of uh, Alan Shepard and his first flight on that Mercury Redstone. Yeah, that was one of the things I, I might have asked them was was that kind of a, a deliberate deal to go ahead and try to recreate that? Or was it just like, oh, shoot, we're never going to really see this thing ever again. So let's take a nice, good, long look at this ride that we're going to have, or at least the second stage we're never going to see again. Um, so let's, let's take a nice, good, long look at this ride as it's, it's, it's the first one and see what, uh, you know, just, just take it in, take the moment in. And both of them just, you know, stood back. They got into a, one of the, the corners there and looked, looked up, just took a good long look, look at the booster and, and the, uh, and the launch vehicle there. And I thought that was really, really an interesting callback to, uh, to that to mercury redstone three although i think the ironic thing is that uh <laughs> they will actually get a chance to see most of their rocket again as the only thing that isn't reused now is the second stage yeah pretty much um and the 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 spacecraft well this well the trunk obviously is going to get jettisoned but the the actual capsule is going to get reused i believe the dragon the crew dragon capsule is designed to be re reused 10 times i believe and uh uh, you know, obviously, the I think the core boosters also, the first stage core boosters also have, I think, a similar lifetime. I'm not, somebody out there can check that, but 
Um, I think they've got a similar lifetime of about 10 launches. But this was going to be the first time that this particular booster, both the old NASA worm and the old NASA meatball were, were firmly affixed. The NASA worm was on the on the uh, uh, first stage, and the, the NASA you know, meatball that we all know and love was on, uh, was on dragons. So, um, both equal time to, uh, to both systems or both, uh, both logos, although there was that incessant argue argument over which one was better on, uh, on the coverage, which was, uh, it was, it was fun, but you know, after a while it was like, oh, okay, whatever guys. Exactly. So we move from there and then the traditional ride up the elevator with the new fancy look of the uh, of the tower. And ironically, as new and as shiny as it all looked, they still stopped at an old fashioned telephone to make one last call before boarding. Yeah. And that, and I think that's that that was a tradition that was extended during shuttle, too, if I'm not mistaken. And, and actually during a lot of missions where that telephone was was available if they wanted to make one more phone call and i believe that was used because there were family members that just could not make the launch and uh so it was a it was an opportunity for the crew to go ahead and make one one little phone call to whoever they wanted to talk to and and just say hey you know we're we're gonna you know we're going to space and thank you for any support and and uh you know wish us luck and sometimes you gotta sometimes those landlines are useful and then and in this case it uh, it definitely was and uh the interesting thing too was because i had some questions on twitter when i was i was trying to you know live tweet the launch um everybody thought that that service structure there next to dra next to uh crew dragon uh, was brand new. No, it's not. That is essentially the origin. That is basically the old shuttle fixed service structure. The uh, remote uh, service structure was torn down. They, there was no need for it. Again, that service, basically the payload section of, of the orbiter, um, that was that was just completely uh, shredded by uh, by NASA um, at the request of SpaceX because they didn't need it. It was just kind of sitting there. And um, but the fixed service structure is there. And somebody also had a question with with reference to the um, the lightning poles. How come there weren't three or four lightning poles surrounded surrounding this thing? I said, well, because already the fixed service structure has its own lightning uh, rod attached to it. That's that large white um, uh, uh, large white rod sticking out of the, the top there. And uh, so that basically protects the uh, the area from lightning. It's the same one that was used for shuttle, but uh, a lot of people just had the misnomer that that was that was brand new. Nope, it was it it that is the original uh, shuttle fixed service structure that that tower that was sitting next to Dragon. There's a lot of uh, with even though it looks old, brand new and fresh. There's a lot of old fashioned stuff in there, and even the uh, the way out to the launch pad is a little different. They had it enclosed, of which the crew has said they appreciated because they didn't have as many mosquitoes because of that. Yeah, right. It is, Flor it is Florida and the heat and humidity. Um, but then even the white room, which is uh, a throwback to the old days, going well back to the classic era here. You know. Uh, Think of all the Apollo missions. They go down that one little hall into that tiny white room. They kept it, painted it white in true tradition, but they added a new tradition of signing the wall 
of the White Room before boarding their spacecraft, which I think was kind of cool. Yeah, the the White Room sort of dates all the way back to the Gemini days, actually. Uh, and uh, um, but yeah, another tradition I'll I'll just you know toss in there was that uh, I believe started by Bob Bankin when he and his family were still over at the beach house uh, adjacent to uh, to the launch pads there, which is now, you know, it's, it's beach house slash conference center, but it still serves the, the purpose of being a gathering place for, uh, for the families before a launch. He started a new tradition out there too. He basically launched uh, a few of the, uh, the small model rockets that uh, some of our uh, listeners might still launch today. I know I do um, from the beaches over there at Cape Canaveral. So the, the family sort of had their own little, little launch, if you will, uh, from the, uh, a small, very small launch pad uh, off off the beach. So I thought that was kind of a neat new tradition to start too. Oh, absolutely. It's adorable, and uh, hopefully they'll continue doing that. I hope so. Uh, As a model rocketry enthusiast, God, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, they got into their spacecraft, which I'll be honest, looked so much easier than shuttle because you're not going in sideways and immediately on your back. They kind of just stepped right in got it strapped in and then moved themselves up in the capsule a little bit to get up to their screens, which, again, a nice little touch just to keep it super simple and easy. They closed it up, sealed up the hatch, and then the old-fashioned hurry up and wait as we wait for launch. Yeah, you know, and, and you pointed that out too, sir, that it was a very... it's it, the, the whole process was really quick. I mean, it moved... I, I, I mean, I've, I've seen strap-in processes before, uh, would shuttle and in, in comparison to this was fast. I mean, all it really was was just making sure the foot restraints were up, and then uh, um, at a certain point uh, later on, they rotated or moved the seats into the launch position, basically so the crew can you know handle the controls a little better, but also too to absorb the the g forces of launch. And that I think too is a neat feature that that Crew Dragon has those articulating seats in there. Um, that they can move, you know, either f- forward or backward. And uh, the the other thing too, and I'm going to go there, re- go go there real fast, was that the crew had the option of asking when they wanted the onboard cameras on. And I thought that was really really neat too. So they would ask the crew, "Is it okay to come on board?" And they say, "Yeah, okay, fine." Or they say, "No, wait a minute," and they would, you know, go ahead and activate the cameras that was later on orbit and this is also the first time in u.s spaceflight history that we've had an onboard camera live with the crew yes. we've seen it in the past on tape but this is the first time we saw the live downlink from inside yeah and what was really cool sawyer was having that one camera looking over the shoulders of both uh, Bankin and hurley and you actually saw the panels and what they were looking at and uh, the, again, those flat panels are something out of you know 2001, grant you. And I was wondering too what the um, transition was like. You know, from you know you had uh, two old stick and rudder guys that were dealing with you know flying a ship by um, essentially a flat panel, and um, they said it did take some getting used to. But uh, once once you've got it, it's it, it it's like flying, it's like riding a bike. You know, you don't forget, and uh, you know you're you're almost down to muscle memory at that point. So uh, it was just a really apparently it was just a very smooth transition from 
uh, you know, holding a holding the stick to uh, to the flat panels. But those those flat panels again, they, they gave you a lot of data, a lot of information. You saw what they were, and you saw what what they were they were putting up there, and it was it was actually a fascinating experience to to watch the launch from that vantage point. Yeah, again, we got a lot of new vantage points with this, so that was that was fun to see. Uh, and then the other interesting thing before we get towards the launch part was. As soon as they did their comm checks, I mean, you and I and Mark were tweeting about this right away about how much clearer the audio sounded. First off, the tones, the little, the Quindar tones, the beeps when they turn on and off their mic sounded a little different, but the quality sounded just so much better. And I don't know if it's just change in years or change in technology or both, but it, I don't know, it just sounded like they were almost in your room as opposed to coming over a radio. Yeah, the, uh, um, those are basically there to um, say, okay, hey, guys, pay attention. There's a message coming through. Um, and that, that's pretty much it. And that's what they were designed to do during, during, uh, during Apollo. Also, too, somebody um, had a question with reference to the term CORE, C-O-R-E. That was basically the, the SpaceX version of the, of the capsule communicator or CAPCOM. CORE stands for uh, Crew Operations and Resource Engineer, um, but that individual is responsible for communicating directly with the crew, and there were several of them online when um, you know, during the during the flight when uh, uh, the Hawthorne uh, the Hawthorne Mission Control Center would go ahead and talk to uh, talk to the crew. Yes, Capcom is not gone. It's just different terminology with SpaceX. I want to I want to get that out there. That that that's a SpaceX internal term. Uh, Capcom is still alive and well and serving within the NASA um, Mission Control Center. Yes. So then the countdown continues onward. We get the go for fueling again. Another first is starting fueling with the crew on board. And we had talked about this years ago when they had first mentioned it. The concerns they had over starting tanking essentially from scratch on the first stage, at least, and a little bit of the second stage uh, with the liquid oxygen and RP-1, it's called the rocket propellant one, which is rocket fuel grade kerosene uh, with the crew sitting right on top. And I mean, obviously everything went fine with both tanking attempts and apparently to train them before the real day when they were doing all their simulations, they would play sounds of what it sounds like for the tanks filling up so they'd be used to it on launch day. That whole thing was very, very controversial. Um, if you recall, we had talked about it several times. Um, astronaut Tom Stafford uh, had uh, a lot to say about that during the, uh, the NASA uh, ASAP meetings. There was a lot of concern about fueling with the crew on board because they had never done anything like that before. Uh, in the past, NASA had gone ahead and fueled all of their spacecraft in advance before the crew arrival, and they made sure that there were no leaks or anything like that. Um, once they were sure that you know the spacecraft was or the rocket was fully fueled and and everything was copacetic with the launch vehicle, then they'd bring the crew over and get them situated inside the vehicle. Uh, that. Um, went by the wayside uh, with with SpaceX at least. They decided to do a different approach and that had a lot of people kind of nervous because of the obvious dangers. 
what they decided to do to alleviate that problem was to go ahead and activate the launch abort system first and then start fueling. So then if there was an incident, like say, if uh, folks can remember their, their history, um, I'm going to take you back a little bit to uh, the uh, ill-fated Amos 6 fueling attempt where they had the Falcon being fueled with the with the Amos 6 payload on there and unfortunately something happened where they overpressurized one of the tanks and the, the entire uh, launch vehicle was lost on, on the launch pad and it took out basically uh, launch complex 40 for a while. Um, that was an example of what they were showing that could theoretically happen. So the idea was to say, okay, we'll get the, the, the pad abort system activated first. So in the event something like, you know, a catastrophic loss of vehicle happened, you can, the astronauts, all they would have to do is just, you know, hit the, hit the big red button and get them out of there and lo and behold they're they're safely you know parachuting into the atlantic and away from from the conflagration on the, on the launch pad so uh that was the way around around the problem so that was the whole rationale they baked into this that we can still do this our way but with these provisions and i guess nasa early on bought into that and said okay you know, we'll allow it. We'll we'll go with it. I mean, uh, then the associate administrator for human and space flight, uh, Bill Gerstenmeier, said, "Okay, we'll 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 take that into consideration, and and we'll we'll greenlight it with those provisions that you know you have the launch abort system activated beforehand. So if there is an event, we can get our people out. And that's 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 the way they 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 kind of went with that going forward." Yes, so we proceeded with fueling on the first day on Wednesday, and then uh, about just after we passed the 17-minute mark until launch, it was called off because of weather concerns. And the important thing with this one is, with crew, you're not just talking about weather at the launch pad. If you remember, during the old shuttle days, there were typically also abort zone weather, so the ability to see the shuttle landing facility if you needed to do... Uh, return to landing site abort. There was the transatlantic abort sites. So typically in Spain and places like that, Zaragoza, they had all these different sites that they had to keep an eye on for weather. For this one, you're keeping an eye on the weather in the oceans, uh, specifically the Atlantic Ocean and four main abort sites. Although they were monitoring 50 different buoys, you've got one off of the Kennedy Space Center, one near the Carolinas, one near New York slash Canada, and then one near Shannon, Ireland. And uh, Gene, you noticed something interesting in the callouts uh, of how they reference these. It's a good old flashback. Yeah, one of them that I heard uh, during the ascent on Saturday, uh, a callout saying one Bravo. And that was essentially uh, an abort control mode. It was where you would go ahead and it was one of the abort stations. And uh, it was just a call out saying, okay, hey, we're, we're at that one, one abort point. That was also a call out for the Saturn V and their launches for the, during the Apollo days. If you listen to the, to the uh, old recordings, you'll hear, you'll hear that one Bravo reference. And it was for the same reason. 
uh, it was uh, an abort control mode, and, and as it was described by, by PAO, it was essentially where the crew could abort to in the event that the stack kind of ran into a problem and they had to get it, get out of there very, very quickly. It's the same one, and it, it kind of gave me goosebumps. I was thinking, oh my, you know, oh my, you know, this is, it, it, it called me back to those days, and I'm, I'm glad it, it was just a, an interesting little tie-in. Yeah, so we reset on that first day and did it all again on Saturday, May 30th, with a new launch time set of 3.22 p.m. Eastern Time. And so rinse and repeat everything you just heard us mention <laughs> from Wednesday through Saturday. Uh, same setup, walk out, roll out to the pad, up the elevator, into the seats, and... Uh, didn't sign the clean room again because they'd already signed it the day before. And this time we actually had liftoff. Yeah, you got to love those wet dress rehearsals. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's basically what they said it was. It was another wet dress rehearsal where you go through everything up until T minus zero except igniting the engine and launching, which they almost got there. Yeah, they, they almost did. And to be honest with you, sorry, I'm kind of glad that they did have that, that extra day because now you know what you got. Now you know your procedures are good. Now you know that that you're you've got a healthy bird. Now you know you've got, you know everything is is good to go. The only blocker you had that day was Mother Nature, so you knew your equipment worked. You knew your procedures were intact. You knew, and hey, guess what? You also understood that your that your teams were communicating that the both the NASA side and the SpaceX side, there was no visible schism between who is SpaceX and who is NASA. It was all, you know, mission team. And everybody was 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 working together. Everybody was was working in concert with each other. It was just a beauty to behold, uh, you know, according to uh, everybody during during the post launch press conference. And it, it just demonstrated, too, that with, with everybody working together, gosh darn it, you, you could really, really do some good stuff. And they proved it uh, on Saturday at uh, 3.22, and thus ending the long drought of, of uh, human spaceflight here in the United States. And this is also something, by the way, that I think the ISS program is going to benefit from, too, because now you've got options. Soyuz is not the only game in town anymore, and I'm not trying to be, um, you know, I'm not putting Soyuz down by any stretch of the imagination. We need that ship. But now we've got options. So if, if, if Soyuz fails, you have... Crew Dragon over here, and you still have access to space, and you still have ac access to domestic access now to an asset in orbit, the International Space Station, that the United States has a vested interest in. And you can actually now get U.S. citizens there on, on demand now, rather than of going through having to pay somebody else to get you there. Now you can do it yourself. And that's basically what the whole commercial crew program is all about. Exactly. And like we talked about in one of the uh, flashback episodes we just released, uh, I believe it was the in-flight abort episode, basically talking about how you've got multiple layers of redundancy now 
Eventually, once Bowen gets in, we'll have three, but for right now, we now have two options of getting crew to and from space with Soyuz and Crew Dragon, and that's huge. So, after the launch, again, it was absolutely spectacular. Uh, we do need to point out that we did have history in that both a sitting president and vice president were there for the launch, with President Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence both there in attendance at the Kennedy Space Center. Uh, not that many people, though, in attendance. And it's interesting watching all the different coverage besides just NASA TV stream talking about how empty and barren the press site was. And in fact, we were not there because of the coronavirus pandemic, as much of the country, must, much of the media as well that would have been there were not for that very reason. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Sawyer. I was watching the whole thing on uh, online, and I was looking over at the clock, and I could just I, I remember seeing at STS one thirty five just the throngs of individual even even at, at the first launch we we really really looked at which was STS one twenty nine as a program um, we there were th still a good number of people at that countdown clock down there it was just barren and. I knew the reason why, you know, it was all due to, to COVID-19 and the and the, the guidelines that have been put together and so on. But I could almost hear, you know, millions of, of Americans shouting, you know, from the rooftops, if you will, you know, trying to get uh, Falcon off the pad. And, and gosh darn it, she did. And, and she put on a, a, a good show for, for us, I I think, anyway, as far as uh, watching this whole thing on television. Yeah, it was, it was a shame not to be there, you know, especially with the historic moment of it, but I, I understand it. Yeah, I mean, we had, you know, full disclosure, we did have plans to go ahead and do exactly what we did for um, STS-135. We were hoping to go ahead and repeat that kind of a program where we would be around for... Um, three hours and, and live stream it and so on because it, it's it's so much easier Sawyer today to do what we did back then you know now we're, we're nine years away from it from a, a logistic standpoint it's it's a lot easier with a lot of the new tools that are available all we really needed to do was was just some minor things and we we could have we could have done a, a, a whole feature from there but unfortunately it was not to be but uh um, I'm not that I'm complaining because the main part of this thing is that we had a successful launch. We had two Americans in in orbit, and uh, later on, as we'll find out, they they arrived at their destination. Yes, indeed. Uh, so we actually managed to do a few Facebook lives leading up to it, and then immediately after it as well. So that was as best as we could. Regardless, we had a successful launch, and then shortly after we got to see them on board, they gave a short little uh, tour of what it's like inside the Crew Dragon, and while they were there, they officially named it. We had heard that they were going to be naming the craft. We didn't know what the name was until they got on board during this little tour and mentioned that in honor of the first space shuttle that each of them had flown on, the capsule would be named Endeavor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was that was that was quite a moment, and um, I I thought of you immediately, sorry, by the way, because I know you and that particular orbiter have a have a special relationship there. But um, 
the uh, it, I, I thought that was that was a neat touch where the past met the present. It was really a, a, a neat moment tying in the past with with the present, I thought. Oh, yeah. And uh, yes, I was jumping for joy inside <laughs> when they announced that uh, the first launch I ever saw was Space Shuttle Endeavor. Endeavor carried a patch of mine into space, which I was able to present to the Challenger Learning Centers at their conference on STS-127, which was also Endeavor. So, yes, she was my favorite bird. And to hear that Endeavor flies again. And uh, in case you forgot, Endeavor was originally named after the ship by Mr. Cook. And then it was used previously uh, on Apollo 15 as well. So Endeavor has quite a storied sailing history through the seas and the skies. I'm just happy that that it was... It, it, the name was just so appropriate because indeed it was a, a grand endeavor that uh, both SpaceX and NASA had put together for this mission, and it was it was a fine salute to everybody that had worked hard on on the spacecraft, on the mission, on the planning, and also a salute to to everybody that had worked on I think worked on the shuttle program that uh, uh, that preceded the. Uh, the uh, commercial crew program. So it kind of tied everything nicely in a neat little bow, I thought. It, it brings it all back. And uh, again, just shows a little bit of that joint venture in a way between uh, NASA and SpaceX, just the, the homage there. Uh, and in addition, we also got to meet their third crew member because before they launched, there was a lot of people going, who was that with? You know, they could see some sort of like animal, a possible zero G indicator. We learned... Uh, that it was Tremor, the Apatosaurus, uh, who happened to be one of the stuffed animal toys from one of their kids. Apparently, they all got together before launch. Put they their children both love dinosaurs, and so they were trying to pick which one. And they all agreed upon the multicolor sequined Apatosaurus, and uh, he's now been flying around in the capsule on the space station, and even got to meet the little stuffed Earth that was launched on Demo One. Yeah, and I believe uh, good old Earthy there is coming back with uh, with DM2, so I'm sure that uh, that particular uh, plush Earth is going to find a, a nice place of in on display at uh, SpaceX headquarters in Hawthorne. Um, I don't know where the uh, where Tremor is going to end up. It may end up in you know may end up going back to the family for all I know. Um, I know that was a group effort by the boys. It was um, in the uh, of both families, and it was sort of their participation, if you will, in the mission. Both of them had to go ahead and brainstorm and figure out, okay, which one is going to fly. And they they both in tandem got their collections together and selected. Uh, selected tremor and uh lo and behold uh i i don't know what what what's going to come of that little guy but we'll we'll find out soon enough exactly but it was just fun to see and uh, they also mentioned in the webcast that uh when they were going around hawthorne and spacex headquarters they were there regularly bob Bankin and doug hurley and uh they were just referred to as the dads because they've got the dad type humor, they are both fathers, and they almost felt like fatherly figures to them as they were working on the spacecraft. But if that doesn't scream the dads bringing up one of their children's toys with them into space, I don't know what does. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing I'm, I'll point out, too, is that um, 
I know that the serial numbers for all the parts that relate to the seats and to the pressure suits have both uh, Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley's name in the serial number. There was never a moment um, at SpaceX where they didn't understand that we were going to fly people on this particular spacecraft. I and mean, the, their photographs were all over the place on, on packing slips and things like that. Um, it was just all a, a built into the culture at SpaceX where it was sort of, hey, remember, you know, do your best. I don't care where you were. You could be cleaning the floors or you could at at the shop or you could be you know the mastermind on on the engineering side or doing some other things here never lose sight of the fact that we are flying people on this mission and that seemed to be really really you know just interwoven that whole philosophy was interwoven with the entire spacex team involved in crew dragon because if you recall after a certain incident nasa did a whole cultural review at spacex and that they discovered these little things and they were just wow they were really really taken aback over the fact that yeah they fully understood that this was going to fly humans, and everybody has to understand that we have to be on top of our game here because this people's lives are at stake. People, these aren't, you know, these are fathers. These are, you know, somebody's sons. These are, these are people that are entrusting us with their very existence, and we can't lose sight of that. And, and that was, that was, I mean, hats off to, to both uh, Elon Musk and Gwyn Shotwell for driving that home to everybody at SpaceX. Bravo. Exactly. It, that's the culture that we need. And Elon has talked about before, like, you know, the explosion. That, that's why we test things beyond the limits that they normally would be at so that when we put people's lives on board and put their lives at risk that we're ensuring that we've done everything that we could to keep them safe. And it's especially impressive considering the turnaround rate that SpaceX has had lately with their rockets and their success to go with it. And now the trust to be able to launch people. It was wonderful to see that culture yes. that we need and we need to keep as long as we're launching people that remembering these are fathers, these are people whose lives you have at risk. And I love that their name is literally in the serial numbers on board to remind people. It's fantastic. Yeah, and it's just not with this crew either. It's with crew one and, and successive crews after that. So all future missions. Yeah. 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 So it's 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 interwoven there in into the culture there. And and it's wow. I mean it, it really, really brings it home to the fact that we're really responsible for, for people's lives. And to be honest, I think if if I recall exactly, the the whole idea of flying humans into space was the whole reason why SpaceX even got got started. So this is really really the culmination of of the company's meaning for being. Basically, it it really really hit home when uh, we got to the post launch press conference. But let's go into the docking first. 
Yes, so we will proceed ahead. They went to bed shortly after launch, woke up the next day, and in true tradition, they had wake-up music. It was the song Planet Caravan by Black Sabbath. (laughs) The tradition continues of the crew wake-up music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they even had a playlist going out to the pad, if I remember. The, The playlist, I think one of them was Back in Black. Yes, so it was... As you mentioned, Back in Black by ACDC, followed by the elevator music from the Blues Brothers film, which is... The Girl, the from, Girl from Ipanema. Ipanema. Right, that was it, which which I thought was really... I thought that was a bit of bit of humor on, on their part, but go ahead. <laughs> yes, and then the Army French Horns version of the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah. That was their rollout music. Yeah, which I thought was kind of... I thought the Girl from Ipanema was was, 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 was hysterical because that's that's basically, you know, the, the elevator music version of that. Because <laughs> that, that's just, just, just a staple in every office, apparently. So clever. Uh, so then they woke up and then we prepared for docking. They had their few engine burns all this time. I should point out, by the way, the first stage did land successfully on the barge of course i still love you floating out in the atlantic uh no word yet on whether they will refly that or put it in a museum but we will keep an eye out for that uh and then finally uh 18 hours and 54 minutes after launching from the kennedy space center the crew dragon endeavor officially soft docked with the international space station i should add sawyer too that um all of this is autonomous for the most part. There were just one or two uh, flight maneuvers that the crew made, but that was basically just to test a few things. This vehicle can fly itself, uh, and it could get, get you to the International Space Station um, all by its lonesome. And the idea, too, and this is, this is something else I, I'll, I'll go ahead and, 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 sh- and share a little bit and how both the, the cargo and crew programs kind of cross-pollinate over at, over at SpaceX. A lot of the, the flying experience they got from, from Falcon was from launching, you know, paid cargo, but also launching, um, you know, cargo for the International Space Station. So they learned a ton about what they had with with Falcon Falcon Nine. They learned a ton of what they had with Dragon because of the abilities there. But the the, the current iteration of uh, Cargo Dragon, you have to go ahead and pick it out out of the sky and snare it the same way you have to with um, with HTV and so on. The new version coming up will look identical to the Cargo to the Crew Dragon. But it too will be autonomous, and it's a way to go ahead and test that software a little bit to make sure that indeed you can it, it could fly successfully. They did that on on demonstration mission one, where you had a successful docking there. But they're also doing it. There was kind of validating things on demo two where they allowed the crew to kind of do a couple of things, but basically turn the spacecraft back over to uh to automation control and then dock fully automated i'm sure however that the crew had to go ahead and pull themselves off of the controls a little bit because i'm sure they probably would have preferred flying dragon in themselves rather than letting the computer do it but that's what the flight plan called for and they went ahead and, and probably kind of you know 
said don't touch and slapped their hands and let the let the spacecraft do its thing. Yeah, in fact, uh, we found out that shortly after they went into orbit, they took it for a little test spin just to see what it was like flying in orbit. And in addition to the planned uh, little test maneuvers as they went towards the ISS, they docked. And for the first time in a long time, we heard the bell. Dragon arriving. Crew of Expedition 63 is honored to welcome uh, Dragon and the commercial crew program to uh, welcome aboard the International Space Station. Bob and Doug, glad to have you as part of the crew. Well done. Bravo, Zulu. Yeah, that was, oh boy. I mean, you want to talk about a, a hair on the back of your neck moment. That was that was one of them, where that bell rung, and it had been so long, and I was wondering if they were going to... If uh, Chris Cassidy, who's currently on the International Space Station, he's, he's the commander of the International Space Station for this increment, was was going to do that. And lo and behold, you know, he 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 did it. And it was just uh, it was good to hear that bell again. It was good to hear, you know, a, a familiar name coming in. Um, and gosh darn it, it was good to hear that the United States was back in the game again and getting uh, people into space. Yep, it's it's the little bit of nostalgia when you hear it, but it's a new era that it's ringing in at the same time. Exactly. Getting, getting deep there. Uh, <laughs> so then uh, about an hour and a half after initial docking, the hatches were opened and Bob and Doug made their way on board the International Space Station to meet up with Chris Cassidy and then uh, the two Russian crewmates, Ivan Wagner and Anatoly Ivanishin. Yep, and uh, just as an aside, I don't know if anybody took note, but uh, uh, they did bring up some cargo. Not a whole lot, but some on uh, on the good ship Endeavor. Uh, some of it was tucked away underneath those articulating seats that I talked about earlier. And uh, for those of you watching at home, home and may have seen this, there's about, let me see, four uh, of these little, what they call lockers, or small boxes, if you will, that had material inside. And uh, just as an aside, I'm going to throw this out there. Um, the uh, Those stowage lockers, as they were referred to, were actually created here in, not too far away from where I live, in Denville, New Jersey, by high school students attending the Engineering Design and Advanced Manufacturing, or EDM program, um, at the County College of Morris, which is just up the road from where I live, um, they they were responsible under the NASA HUNCH, H-U-N-C-H program, um, for designing these, these boxes, um, first off, uh, and and putting them together. Uh, this is for Votech students. This was out of the Morris County Vocational School District. And these are basically for Votech students, giving them a chance to go ahead and create space hardware um, to, uh, you know, space flight specifications and to design it and to say, okay, now we've got to go ahead and make sure that this this material is space hardened and and can can deal with the rigors of spaceflight. It's a perfect way to introduce um, Votech students to getting you know space spaceflight hardware up and going. In fact, uh, if I believe uh, the table in the wardroom. Um, 
that uh, the astronauts eat at was also designed by the same program through NASA Hunch. So um, if you want to go ahead and learn more about the NASA Hunch program and see if, uh, if it can help you out um, from, a, from a, um, a school district standpoint, I mean, there were other schools participating in there. They do culinary um, arts as well and, and design foods that could be sent up to the International Space Station as well. It, the, the whole purpose of it is, one, to get high school students excited about space and getting them to, getting them experience and using, air, you know, designing something to aerospace tolerances. Also, it helps NASA out, out a little bit. It keeps the cost down because now you're not hiring, you know, some defense contractor to go ahead and do this. You can go ahead and, and uh, give this assignment to school children. But also, it really, really shows that it takes so many people to get to space and so many disciplines to get to space. It's not just the engineers and the scientists. If you are in a, in a vocational uh, track, you too can contribute to the space program. And that's just a way of demonstrating it. That's so cool. And even though I'm no longer in New Jersey, still got to love when there's a New Jersey group that's making a big move and doing some things up in space. It's it's so cool. Again, you, you sometimes forget about the little things like compartments and tables that still need to be, so, you know, involved in the space program. And it's great to see these companies doing that. Every every big story has always got a Jersey connection. And, and with, <laughs> with, with, with spaceflight, it just seems to bubble over. I, I never really realized that until um, I did some digging. Well, I'm glad you did that. Uh, so we finally got the crew on board the International Space Station. They had their whole welcoming ceremony to have them on board. And at this point, we don't know exactly how long they're going to be on board yet. But we do know when they come back, uh, they will come back likely with the Apatosaurus. They will come back <laughs> with Earthy. And they will come back with an American flag, but not just any flag. A SpaceX is the official winner's of a game of capture the flag, yes. basically. Yes, Sawyer, that flag has got a pretty illustrious history. It first flew on STS-1 with the last time we had a you know a, a vehicle that was flying with with crew for the first time, and that was a pretty gutsy mission. That was with uh, John Young and uh, and Bob Crippen, and. Both of those astronauts were flying a vehicle that had never been flown before for the very first time, and the only thing they had between them and total disaster were two ejection seats. And even those were kind of problematic trying to survive them. So it, it kind of harkened back to, to, to that point. But that flag um, flew with them, came back down, um, and then flew with STS-135, um, and oddly enough, was also left behind by a member of that crew, Doug Hurley, and here he is kind of picking it up again. The idea of that is the, the company that, uh, the, the commercial company, or whoever that was going to be, that would return to the International Space Station first, would pick up the flag that was left behind by STS-135, and return it back to Earth. Then, after which it was going to fly again, I believe, the next time it'll fly will be with um, Artemis three, which will be the first uh, uh, lunar landing mission, and it will be returned uh, to NASA, and then it will fly again 
on the uh, the first uh, human attempt to to land on Mars. So it's going to have a very long and storied history. But for a while, it is going to sit in the um, Hawthorne headquarters. I'm sure it will have a prized uh, area uh, at uh, the off the SpaceX off offices over there in Hawthorne. And uh, bravo to them for uh, for being the uh, the first. Uh, uh, U.S. company to, to deliver U.S. astronauts uh, from U.S. soil back to the International Space Station and indeed getting the United States back and going in the space in the human spaceflight business again. It's hard to believe it took nine years to get it. But again, we finally captured the flag and it had a, uh, a special note on it even said uh what was it? To be returned by crew launched from KSC. Yes, right. Exactly. So, yeah, it, it finally happened. And uh, in addition to bringing back the flag, they also brought up a special mural. Because of what's going on with the coronavirus, uh, a lot of students did not get a chance to celebrate their graduation from whatever grade, from kindergarten all the way through high school and into college. And so SpaceX said, hey, submit your photos and we will make a mural of the Earth using your graduation pictures. And they brought it up with them on the ISS and did a special presentation about a day after they were on orbit. Yeah, I thought that was really a cool gesture by both NASA and SpaceX to get that uh, mural together. And uh, again, it, it shows the, the, uh, the Western Hemisphere of Earth. And it is basically dotted with the pictures that uh, uh, all of the kids had sent in, and um, it's something that they could tell their their uh, their grandkids that their their photograph, their their graduation photograph, even though they did not have the typical um, cap and gown ceremonies because of this horrible pandemic that's that's beating down the world right now. They had the privilege of having their photograph fly in Earth orbit. I mean, I can't say that. <laughs> Can you? I can't. Absolutely not. To, to get back to the to the mission itself, um, Sawyer, again, we don't know when they're going to be coming back down. I know for a fact that uh, the ISS office has got some, some work to do as far as uh, ISS maintenance goes. I know that Chris Cassidy is probably putting both... Uh, Bob and Doug to work um, with with some of the experiments, but the one of the things that the uh, the 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 Japanese just brought up on their uh, last and I do mean last um, HTV HTV flight. Um, this will be the last version of the uh, uh, white stork uh, cargo vehicles that are flying up or at least this particular iteration, there's a larger one called the HTV-X that is being worked on right now, and they expect that one to fly in another two years. But for now, the, the White Stork is, is, is going to fly her last. The ISS batteries, the lithium batteries that, been, that they were swapping out earlier, there's another set of them on board HTV. They want to see if they can go ahead and get those batteries swapped out. Um, on the other side, on the other circuit for the, for the uh, International Space Station. Because it's kind of critical going forward. They're getting rid of the nickel-cadmium batteries that were in there, and, and they're swapping, swapping them out for these lithium-ion batteries. And um, 
these batteries are going to be there basically for the until the end of the end of life essentially of of the international space station so it's kind of critical that they get them and them in there uh that's something that if dragon behaves and there's no right now there's no indication that it might not um and the crew would have to come home prematurely there's um i know uh bob Bankin and uh, doug hurley have trained on that eva uh they may be doing that eva to get at least one set of those batteries swapped out so that's a possibility that they're looking at uh, I believe there's going to be a decision pending in the coming weeks. We'll note, we'll come back and notify you of, of that when it happens. But uh, so far, it, it, it looks like that EVA is probably going to occur. Uh, there's some other things that they want to do with, with Dragon 2. I believe there's one uh, experiment that they want to try, uh, because Dragon is supposed to provide a 24-hour safe haven for the crew in the event that ISS... Does you know you have to go ahead and use it as a as a safe haven or lifeboat for 24 hours, so you can pile you know seven people into it and and not have a problem. Well, unfortunately, right now they don't have seven people to pile into, but they want to make sure that the vehicle can stay powered up um, for a 24-hour period in the event that it needs to. So that's one of the things that they're going to be testing and looking at. Um, but after all of the, the testing is over, they're going to power Dragon up at least once a week, check its systems, make sure that it's, it's, it's still happy, and uh, basically call, the, call their, their stay on, that, on the basis of those tests there when they power Dragon up. And if it behaves, they'll get the okay to hang around for another week, and then they'll fire it up again and see what's going on. If it, everything checks out, they'll... Put Dragon to bed again. Turn everything down. Um, I believe the solar panels that are embedded in the Dragon trunk have a lifetime of between 114 and 120 days. I've heard that the limit that they want to keep it there is for 114 days. So if this goes the distance, it'll probably be a 114-day mission, and they'll go ahead and they'll come back down at that point um and uh we'll see something that uh not a lot of people well some of us remember and some of us weren't around for we'll actually see uh two u.s astronauts splash down in the atlantic ocean that's something that a lot of people don't remember seeing or may have been too young or uh, to recall it, but uh, it, it's something else. It's another aspect of this mission that you know, not a lot of people have seen before. And personally, between you, me, and the wall there, Sawyer, and everybody listening, I'm going to be biting my nails until that occurs. And that's when I'm going to go ahead and say, you know, you know, that's when I'm going to go ahead and land the plane on the carrier and say, mission accomplished, <laughs> and say that, that we were we were successful. That once Bob and uh, Doug are back on the back on the uh, on the recovery ship, but that's what that's where we stand right now with the mission. We're going to make sure that that dragon's behaving. So far, I mean, it's what it's June seventh as I record this. There's a couple of more press conferences tomorrow with media on uh, on Sunday morning. I believe NBC, CBS, ABC. They're going to be talking to the crew, so we might have some more little tidbits for you at that point. Anything else? We'll be following the mission really, really close. 
but so far as we know now, it, it's it's going to be touch and go. We're going to see what happens with Dragon if she behaves. We'll put we'll probably press further and knock on wood. We'll be there the full 114 days. That would be nice. And uh, I know, again, Chris Cassidy is very glad to have some people up there. And uh, we're excited that they're up there. And like you said, all holding our breath until they finally make it back home safely. Yeah, agreed. I should mention, too, that poor old Doug hit his head on something coming in there and because if you take a look at the the the, uh, the video from that he's he's actually got a tissue he's patting his forehead a little bit I don't know if he actually broke skin or not um, that that's something that we we didn't hear about and uh, uh, but he seemed to you know he's a marine he he, he kind of brushed it off but uh, it he probably dinged himself pretty good and, you know here he is he's, he's making history and boom <laughs> yeah that's a, a bit of an embarrassing ouch but it's part of history, I guess, now. Yeah, you know, it's just part of being an astronaut. <laughs> the hardships of the job. Yes, yes. exactly. Banging your head. <laughs> so I, I know this is a bit of a long episode, but I think one thing that we need to do as we talk about the history, I'm sure many of you listening to this probably watched it or probably kind of here for our opinions on it. But one thing, if you've listened this far, uh, that I think we need to address is how we got to where we are today. And I'm not just talking about rolling out the rocket and all the stuff we've already talked about pre-launch. I'm talking about how did the how do we get from the inception of the commercial crew program and when did the commercial crew program actually come into existence to the final first successful test flight with humans on board. And I think it's going to surprise some people that to start, we need to go back all the way to President George W. Bush. Yeah, Sawyer, I've, I saw a lot of, when when, when you and I were, were doing the pre-show, we saw a lot of chatter about who gets the credit for it, you know, because the current administration was taking credit for it, then everybody said that, that the previous administration did it. Oh, not quite. It actually started out with um, then-NASA Administrator Michael Griffin. Um, who was really, really the uh, father, I would say, of the COTS program or the, uh, the commercial cargo program. It was just sort of a plan B, if you will, for, uh, uh, for cargo later on when um, the shuttle was kind of coming out of existence. And he was the one who really, really championed the, the commercial cargo program. They also thought about, well, maybe we can go ahead and try this with crew a little bit. And it was really supposed to be sort of a plan B or a plan C if no, if we could not get astronauts to the ISS. Because after a while, you know, the, the idea was maybe, you know, using Orion. But as it, as it occurred to somebody there, using Orion to, to get to the International Space Station was kind of like, you know, using a a 10-pound sledge to, to slam a fly. It was really, really overkill. Orion wasn't going to go ahead and be built for for the International Space Station, although it would be tested, and it, that was going to be its first mission, believe it or not, uh, to go to the International Space Station and to make sure that, you know, it fly, flew right and all that. It, it seemed to be kind of a logical thing to do. Um, but, yeah, it actually really stems all the way back then, 
I will point out too that people say, well, it it was it was the Obama administration. Well, yeah, it was, but their Plan B or Plan C um, became Plan A. The Obama administration decided maybe we'll just go with this and not build a new vehicle at all, um, and just let let private industry handle it. I will say on the outset too that during the uh, 2008 uh, presidential campaign, um, the the uh, then Senator Obama had a plan to go ahead and put together a whole new new educational initiative. Uh, it was going to put computers in every classroom. It was going to go ahead and rehabilitate schools that really needed it. It was actually going to knock down old school buildings that were determined to be inadequate to the task and build new ones. Uh, it was it was really really a total you know revamp of the of the public educational system. That's what he he sort of envisioned. The way he was going to to go ahead and and pay for that was to slash the NASA budget in half, and it was going to take that seven billion dollars from NASA and put it into the education system. It was going to put Constellation then the program of record that was going to get us to the moon on ice to the tune of $500,000 on life support alone and just you know basically gut the US space program then he got to Florida and a gentleman by the name of Senator Bill Nelson got his attention and overnight that plan vanished off of the Obama 08 website and a new space plan was put in its place basically saying that he was for closing the gap and and really really bolstering the the US space effort um then we got into 2010 constellation it turns into cancellation the idea too was floated that maybe we'll take NASA and bring it back into its R&D roots alone and try to go ahead and turn it back into the old NACA where it's developing simply propulsion systems that sometime in the future maybe might get us to Mars by 2030 or 2035 and in turn allow commercial to take point. Um, well, the Congress didn't like that idea too much, and it wasn't really really born out of the plan that you know they that they were pro NASA or anything like that. They just didn't like the idea of the president canceling a, a large program like the Constellation program was, but you know without consulting the Congress first because Congress holds the per the purse strings and in all fairness I'm not I'm gonna say that it's not the first time that that's occurred where the president has taken a program scrubbed it and I'm not talking about a and just simply a NASA program I'm talking about any kind of large buildup or any type of large program and just said no I'm not going to do this and just said too bad I'm canceling it in the uh, in the interim, what was going on is uh, Charlie Bolden, who was then the NASA administrator, was really, really trying to be the champion of the commercial crew program because he saw it as the on-ramp to the International Space Station for, uh, for the United States. 
and he really, you know, with shuttle now going away in the process of going away, that that point of no return, by the way, uh, was reached in 2006. But it was Charlie Bolden that really, really championed the commercial crew program in this whole thing. And if if anyone deserves any credit uh, to getting us to where we are, it's it's former NASA Administrator Charles Bolden. Um, Jim Bridenstine in so much said that during his his uh, his addresses uh, during the commercial the, the successful uh, launch and docking and uh, that, that Charlie deserves all the credit f- for this. In fact, uh, Sawyer, um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you I'll throw this over to you and you could go ahead and, and, and say what General Bolden, had told uh, Jim Bridenstine. This was in a New York Times article, uh, and it's quoted as saying, uh, as I told Jim Bridenstine, whatever happens on your watch, take credit for exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> and the best part is, is you and I were talking about this before the show, that having met him before and having heard him speak so many times, that is such a Charlie Bolden thing to say. Yeah. And admittedly, I have to say, though, Jim Bridenstine does deserve a lot of credit for having taken this program over, I mean, there's credit going all the way back. All of the administrators up to this point, basically, have had a major hand in it. But for Jim Bridenstine, even with the, you know, the failure of one of the test articles from SpaceX and all the concerns and then with Boeing Starliner issues, still kept pushing, we are going to do this. And all of them, I think, deserve the success. Jim Bridenstine, now the administrator, as we actually had this launch. I think an important way that we need to end this episode here is there's a lot that's obviously been going on around the world, especially here in the United States, with the horrific death of George Floyd at the hands of some police officers in Minneapolis. It was horrendous and horrible, and I, and I'm sure you as well, Gene, wholeheartedly support the people that are out there peacefully protesting this and voicing their opinion and demanding change with all the unrest going on, the racism going on, and all of the horrible things that are happening that are finally being brought to light by this. And we agree it is time for change. And I know I've seen online some people arguing about this particular issue, but if nothing else, with everything that was going on in the world for just a few hours, NASA and SpaceX, and Bob, and Doug gave us a chance to put that on the back burner and realize that some amazing minds came together of all different backgrounds, diversities from multiple countries, immigrants, everybody worked on this mission for years, and here we are. We are able to finally, once again, launch Americans from U.S. soil on a U.S.-built Rocket. In fact, everything related to this launch was trending on the top five or six topics when it came down to launch. And I know some people will say it didn't really unify us as much as it would have liked, but I will argue that even if it didn't keep us unified for a few hours, it gave us a chance to realize that when everybody of every kind of race, creed, background, any of that comes together, we can make some amazing things happen. Sorry, I couldn't have said that any better. Um, first off, thank you for for your eloquent words because I I was going to say something quite similar, 
the uh, the events of the past few weeks have been mind-boggling, and the fact that we actually have to sit here and still talk about what had occurred on a on a street in Minneapolis um, after after seeing because I'm by now everybody on on the planet has probably seen that eight minute video and were just horrified by it as as much as I was and uh, there there's just no place for for something like that to occur. But I agree with you, Sawyer, that uh, for one brief moment, both on a Wednesday and on a Saturday and indeed on a Sunday, that NASA, just like um, 1968, if you will, because that's what I'm reminded of, the United States at that point in time was trying to go ahead and tear itself to shreds. Uh, we had two major assassinations that year. We had the the riots in uh, at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Uh, unrest all over the place. The war in Vietnam. Everything. Today we're fighting an unseen enemy, the COVID nineteen virus. Everybody is involved. We have almost all coming up soon on almost 7 million people that are impacted by this thing um, worldwide and almost 2 million here in the United States. Then we have the absolute atrocity that occurred um, in Minneapolis. And yet, for one brief shining moment, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration and SpaceX, and the, four, the, you know, the 45th Space Wing, everybody involved in that showed us what humans can do if they reach deep down and think about different possibilities. And nobody thought about what, you know, what pigmentation, internal plumbing, you know, orientation, religion, anybody was 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 during the construction and planning of that mission. Nobody cared. We were all part of that. Everybody involved was part of that team. And I know some writers have, have kind of differed and said, well, this didn't bring the world together the way NASA said it would. I don't think it was supposed to, but it was for one brief moment we saw what was possible. And I think that's the point to bring home at the end of all of this. And it shows what humanity can do when it decides it wants to work together. And maybe that's the lesson to take out of the Demonstration 2 mission. That this is the stuff that humans can do when they really, really work hard and are able to go ahead and come together for a common cause. I I couldn't agree more, and I, I think that's the point where we need to end this episode on that note, that, again, we are going through an unprecedented time right now, but just remember, right now there are three Americans in space, two of them launched from the Kennedy Space Center, 
and the whole world came together to send him off, even again, just as a short break of what's going on in this world, and we can't undermine what is actually happening, but we can at least take a few moments to reflect on the good that can happen when we all come together. And on that, I'd like to say, Gene McCulka, thank you for joining us tonight. It was a grand and enlightening episode, Sawyer. Thank you so much uh, for sharing the mic with me today, and I'm hoping everybody got something out of, uh, out of this evening's discussion. Exactly. And, of course, we'd like to thank you for joining us, and, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Mm-hmm.